I do my best work in places where I feel a little uncomfortable. Like if I'm a little scared, if I feel like I'm taking a risk, it probably means that I'm doing the right thing. And I really do believe that because it's so easy to just coast along doing what we're good at. But that doesn't give you any confidence. It doesn't give you confidence to be good at something and then just keep doing it. It gives you confidence to try something new. Maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't, but you know that you're strong enough to try and you're okay with the answer either way. And that really, in my opinion, is the key to being more confident. Lydia Fanet is the most powerful woman in the room. She is one of the world's most accomplished and sought-after auctioneers and has raised over a billion dollars for nonprofits globally on behalf of organizations such as Christie's, Louis Vuitton, and the Elton John's AIDS Foundation. Lydia is currently the founder and CEO of the Lydia Fanet Agency, a boutique agency representing best-in-class charity auctioneers. In this episode, we get the inside scoop on Lydia's inspiring journey as a charity auctioneer, the importance of making the ask, and how we can claim our confidence and own our power. So what are you waiting for? Let's dive right in. Hi. This is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Lydia Fanet, welcome to the Explore This podcast. We're so excited to have you here with us. I'm so excited to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. We love amplifying unconventional career journeys here on the Explore This podcast. And I have to say, you know, we've had guests from diverse industries on the podcast, but this is the very first time that we have a charity auctioneer. So we are super excited to hear all about your journey today and to learn how we can claim our confidence in the best way possible. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm excited to be here. And yes, you are correct. There are very few female charity auctioneers. So I think it probably isn't that big of a pool to draw from. Besides being a globe-trotting charity auctioneer, you are also the CEO of your own agency, a podcaster, best-selling author, and mother of three. I, I think everyone should absolutely follow you on Instagram. We can see that your schedule is so jam-packed, but honestly, you do it with such infectious positivity. And so we'd love to hear from you. What is a day in the life of Lydia Fanet like? Well, no two days in my life are ever the same. And we were laughing about this before the podcast started. You know, I'm doing this early morning, having just gotten three children off to school. I think most of my days start exactly the same way. It's I have three kids. So the days start a little earlier than likely most people, but it all starts with school. And so I like to think about the fact that I back into my days, figuring out how many things I have to do. And that figures out how early I need to get out of bed. And, you know, on days where I have a podcast, a lot of times I'll do a lot of the prep work in the morning. So I'll get up around six and give myself a solid hour of quiet time before the kids get up to really dig into my guest and learn a little bit more about it. And I feel like it stays with me a little bit better if I do it on the same day. And then I rouse my kids around seven and my husband and I have a really good system of one of us stays home while the other one takes the kids to school. And we make that decision typically the night before. And that means that the person who's home is in charge of the house. So you're getting the kids ready. You're making sure that their rooms are tidy. You're making breakfast. And then the other person's getting ready to go to work because, you know, they have to be out the door at 745. But after that, you know, my days really are a complete mashup of podcasting, a lot of calls and 
as you mentioned, I have my own auctioneering agency. So a lot of times I'm training auctioneers who have auctions that evening or on calls with them or for my own clients dealing with the auction specifics. And then the afternoon, sometimes I'll pick up my children depending on the day. Sometimes my husband will do it. Sometimes we have a babysitter. It's really, it's really duct tape and popsicle sticks in our house. There's really no formula for success, but the funny part of my life is that most evenings, especially when I'm in auction season, I go back out at night. So typically around 7, 7.30 at night, I'm changing into a cocktail dress with the help of my daughters and all their opinions. And my 11-year-old daughter, I guess, has had enough exposure on her friend's TikTok to understand what it's like to have stage makeup on. So she actually does my makeup a lot of the time. I usually would put on bronzer and walk out of the door with some mascara. And she's like, oh, no, you need to you know, put this on. I don't even know what she's talking about. But I end up looking a lot better when she does it. So now I just give it to her. And I think it's kind of fun for her to do it as well. And then I'm out on stage most nights, you know, somewhere in New York City or frankly, somewhere in the United States of America, taking charity auctions and raising money for nonprofits, which is really fun. If there's ever anything to do afterwards, I like to go out even afterwards to see friends because I feel like that's frankly the only time I can do it. So dinner for me usually means rolling up just in time for dessert. And then I go to bed <laughs> and then I do it all again. And Let's be real, Lydia, being an auctioneer is not for the faint-hearted. And even just before this interview, you know, Janice and I were discussing about how much exposure do we have to the auction world here in Malaysia? And frankly, the answer is not a lot as well. So, you know, as an auctioneer, you have your fundraising goals that you need to hit, especially since you raised funds for nonprofits. You also need to engage the audience with your particular cause, and that will change depending on who you're working with. And you work the room to build rapport with the crowd, oftentimes very late at night, possibly even drunk, and not necessarily paying attention to the front of the room, but you need to work the room and command their attention. And I've heard you say this before, that after all these years being in this world, there's nothing that you will live for more than for you to be on stage and auctioning for charity. In other words, what it says to me is that you love what you do even till today. So what was that moment that you actually realized that this was the career that you wanted to embark on? You know, I think it was like most things in life. I never really thought of it as a career at the beginning. You know, I tried out to be an auctioneer when I was very young. I was 24 and I was so much younger than everybody else there. And I passed, which even in itself was kind of the biggest joke of all of it because pretty much every other person down there was a guy and they were all 10 years older than me. They all were British. And for them, this was something they were just going to learn how to do in case their client needed it. But as I started taking more and more that first year after passing the class, I realized that this was something that I really enjoyed. It was hard. I wasn't very good at it, but I realized that there was a lot of room to improve. And I say that still to this day. I've been an auctioneer for 20 years. I take 70 to 80 auctions a year. And every time I get on stage, I can look at a performance and think, there's probably something I could have done better. Or maybe the next time I do that, I'll do this. So there's just this constant evolution. And that's like anything in life. Like no one's ever perfect at anything. Even if you're the best at something, it doesn't mean you're perfect. And so getting on that stage night after night, it became a career in many ways because I was realizing that it was something that I was good at. I wanted to practice more and I took it very seriously. And I truly think that that set me apart from most of the other auctioneers who really took it as a joke. I showed up prepared. I showed up sober always, which wasn't what a lot of auctioneers did. And I think also that was because I was a woman. I was worried that the perception of a young woman showing up with a glass of wine in her hand would be completely 
skewed if something went wrong when I was on stage, if I said something that was inappropriate or anything like that happened. If anyone had seen me drinking a glass of wine before as a woman, it would have been like, oh, what's that young drunk woman doing up there? That's what I was always scared of. And so I think I did extra work to make myself feel confident in those rooms. Like there's nothing that they can say that I haven't done to be here, even though they don't think that I should actually be on this stage. So there were so many things that I was kind of working through over the years. But ultimately, what led me about probably 10 years into this was that I realized that people were no longer coming to Christie's to hire me to be an auctioneer. They were coming up to me as I got off stage and saying, I have a nonprofit. I would love for you to come do this for us. And so over time, it became very clear to me that there was a distinction even amongst our clients and even amongst the people that ultimately would become my clients that there was Lydia who worked for Christie's and I had a full-time job there plus the charity auctioneering. And then there was Lydia, the charity auctioneer. And those two things eventually over a two-decade career became separate. And ultimately, that's why I left and started my own agency. I'm so curious to know, given, as I've mentioned, we have so little experience and exposure in the auctioneering world, except maybe for property auctioning. So share with us a little bit more about what was your first auction experience like and what were some maybe difficult lessons that you learned from that first experience? There are two types of auctions. There's art auctioneering, which you probably have seen if you've seen a movie where they have, you know, someone, usually a man in a bow tie on stage, and there are people seated in front of them and they're bidding on a Picasso. And it's very orderly and it's very staid and specific. And the auctioneer is climbing by what we call increments. So amounts of money and people are bidding against each other to ultimately win this or buy it by spending the most. That's the other definition of win. And a charity auction, if you've ever seen a movie where there's a huge, what they call a gala in the US, it's typically hundreds of people seated around tables of 10. Everyone's dressed up. It's black tie. It's very glamorous, but everybody is drinking. They've had a cocktail hour and now they're sitting around with their friends. There's a long program where you know people come and talk about the nonprofit. There's probably somebody who's benefited from the nonprofit. And then the charity auctioneer goes on stage late at night and tries to use all of the programming and the motivation that's been given by the people who come before them on stage in order to get people to donate money. And when I tell you this is business in the US, like there are 1.5 million nonprofits in the US. The nonprofit fundraising sector in the US is 5% of the American economy. So if if you don't understand how big it is, I hope that gives you perspective. I mean, this is a massive part of the American economy and the makeup of America and the way that we are taught, if you make money, you give back. And there are also tax incentives that allow people to write off for giving money. But anyway, so as the auctioneer, you get up on that stage at 11 o'clock at night and you're given a list of maybe five or six things, none of which I would say most of the people in the audience really want. And they usually don't even know that you're getting up there until they see you. And they're, they're sort of like, oh God, here comes the fundraising moment. And essentially what you try to do is get the crowd invited and excited about whatever it is so that they will bid on the items. And then at the end, you do a paddle raise, which is just essentially people giving money to give money to the nonprofit in front of each other. So my first time doing this, I went to Kansas City, which is kind of in the the middle of the US. It was my first charity auction. I had just passed the class. Nobody else wanted to go. So I got to go. (laughs) And I, by the way, was thrilled to go. I cannot even tell you how excited I was to go on a business trip to Kansas City in the middle of winter. It was like 200 feet of snow. And I arrived and I remember as I walked in, they kept saying, but um, who is the auctioneer? And I said, that's me. They said, no, not the person who spots for the auctioneer, not the person yelling, bidding, you know, on the side for the auctioneer, but the person who's actually on stage. And I kept repeating, 
it's me. And everybody there was 70 or 80. And so they, they kept just kind of looking at me like, wait, this what? Belief? Yeah. It's not what they're oh. used to, right? Yeah, exactly. Disbelief and also like hope that I was wrong. And it was so funny because I remember someone saying, well, I guess we could put her at the kids table. Like I wasn't even there. Like, I guess we could put her at the kids table. I'm still standing here. So I got up on that stage and I thought I was going to absolutely rock the stage. You know, I've just, as you said, I'm an endlessly positive person, like almost to a fault. So I got up on that stage and I slammed down my gavel and what you don't realize about a gavel and the reason you will never see me have a handle on a gavel is it's not really meant to bang it many, many times. And I think I was so nervous that I hit it so hard that the top flew off and then rolled under the podium. So I was like, good evening. Oh, oh no. <laughs> and then I had to crawl down and retrieve it from under the podium. And I come back up. And what you learn in charity auctioneering is you have a very short window to get people to pay attention. And even once they pay attention, they can lose attention very quickly. So you have to have all these tricks up your sleeve. And I had no tricks. And I just lost the crowd's attention because I crawled under the podium to get the gavel, which now I would just leave. I would never go back under it. And they just talked the whole time. And I was so deflated when I got off stage because I really thought I was going to be so good at this. And I was so mediocre, <laughs> so mediocre. And that was really what it was like for many, many years. It was a lot of that exact feeling. Like I thought I was going to be amazing and it wasn't that great. And I would have times where it would go better than others. So I would try to evaluate that and adjust my performance. But it wasn't until I had a moment, and I talk about this in my first book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, where I was auctioning off a lot of a woman, a lot is an item. And it was a dinner at a woman's home who I'd been seated next to many years prior when the man I thought I was going to marry had dumped me the night before. And so I'd cried the entire lunch. And so instead of getting up on that stage and just being like, you know, pretending I was an older British gentleman, which I'd been doing with very little effect for many years, I started joking about the fact that this woman had been seated next to me and how instead of spending money to see a therapist, you should give it to the charity and go to her house because she'd have you patched up in an hour because that's what she'd done to me. And the crowd really started to respond. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this can be done differently. What if I made this funny instead of just standing up here and saying the increments the way that I was taught to do it? What if I made it my own style. And that's kind of how I started doing what I now do. And, you know, some people, people say to me, someone said to me last week, like, you should have a one woman show. And I said, I do have a one woman show. I'm on stage five nights a week. Like, this is, this is what I do. And I feel like that side of my personality has really become what charity auctioneering has become for me, which is stand up comedy and motivation and fun and excitement. And all those things come together for that, you know, 20 to 30 minutes on stage to unlock real money for nonprofits. Lydia, we've heard you say that you trained to be an auctioneer, but learning to let your personality shine on stage was your key to success. As you mentioned, humor, being able to have fun and break the ice with the audience, that itself will allow them to kind of connect with you and raise millions for charity in one night. And we're so intrigued by that and would love to hear you elaborate a little bit more about that. And in terms of how do you let your personality shine through during the auctions? And is it possible for us to develop these tips in our own day-to-day -day interactions, even though we are not, you know, raising millions of dollars for charity, for instance? Yeah, absolutely. I think what I learned that night that I was talking about on stage was that I had been trying to be somebody that I wasn't. And if you are in sales and you are inauthentic, it is the biggest way to turn someone off. Like, what about me 
having grown up in a small town in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and having started a job when I was 24 meant that I should act like a mid 50 year old man with a British accent. I mean, I honestly used to affect a small British accent because my mom is British when I got on stage, because to me, that's what I had seen. That was really the only thing that was out there on the charity auctioneering circuit. There was guys who were older, they were very art auction trained. And so they were very specific about what they did. And as a result of that, if I felt like I wasn't doing that, then I felt like I was doing it wrong. And what I learned when I started acting and making fun of things that were happening and really drawing on my own experience as a late 20-year-old woman on stage doing a job that wasn't necessarily meant for me, what I realized was if I showed up as that person, the crowd would respond. It was funny. you know. They thought it was funny that I was up there because I wasn't really supposed to be up there. And I took auctions through three pregnancies. And it was the first thing I would point out. I would say, good evening, everyone. My name is Lydia Finnett. I am so delighted to be here this evening. I feel that you must feel a little uncomfortable right now. So let's get me off the stage as quickly as possible because otherwise I might be at the hospital later or something like that. And people will be like, oh my God, just give her money. You know, I'm hugely pregnant on stage. And I still, to this day, I mean, one of my opening jokes that I use a lot is good evening, everyone. My name is Lydia Finette. I'm your auctioneer this evening. I am so delighted to be here. And I can tell just by looking at your faces that you do not feel the same way. And it, it makes everyone laugh because nobody ever wants a charity auctioneer on stage. And then I'll usually follow up with something like, the bar for my job is very, very low. So let's try to get it up a little higher than that this evening. And just kind of admitting that it's okay. Like, I know you guys don't want me here. I'm going to be in and out in no time. You won't even realize what's happened. And then it's done. And so I think what people can really learn when I talk about that is, I say in my book, sell as yourself. Think about the way that you're presenting yourself and be okay with who you are. You don't have to pretend that you are someone you're not in order to do your job or to show up in life. It's more important that you feel that you can be yourself because ultimately people respond if they think that you are showing up authentically. As I said before, in sales, the most important thing is authenticity, right? People are buying based on trust. They trust you. So if you show up and you're not acting like yourself and you're pretending you're someone that you're not, people are probably looking at you like, why would I buy that? Or why would I listen to this person? They're not even comfortable in their own skin. So think about that. Think about the way that you're showing up and don't be afraid to show up as yourself. What if there are days where you are not feeling 100% or you've tried many ways, but it seems that people are still talking over you or not interested? What are some ways or methods that you use to command the attention of a room? I think we all have to find what I call a strike method, something that makes us feel like we are powerful when we walk into a room. Ever since I started doing that with the gavel, I realized it's almost like my Dumbo's feather. And even if I forget the actual gavel, I mean, last week I forgot it and I used lipstick out of my purse just to make that sound of the gavel hitting the, the podium. And then I said to the audience, like, what's a girl going to do when she forgets her gavel? Luckily, I had lipstick in my purse. I've done that with many bottles of vodka from sponsor bags. I mean, I almost think it's funnier sometimes to bring something that isn't what it should be. But for me, it just makes me feel strong and powerful. You know, if they don't have something for me to, to bang that gavel on three times, I find myself looking for like a staircase, like handle or something to hit it. Just something because that for me summons power. So it's not that you can do that in a boardroom. It's not that you can do that in a conversation, but you can find something that makes you feel strong and bring it with you or a mantra that makes you feel good. When I wrote my first book, I had a lot of people, I would sort of say, like, show me your strike method. And people would come back. And one woman said, you know, before a really big Zoom presentation, she taps under her table three times, like, here we go. 
every single time. And she said that even when she got back into the office, she continued doing it in conference rooms, just like under the table, like here we go. It's time to go. I also have a client who uses a red pebble that she found on a beach after she read the book. And she's like, I just stick it in my pocket. And I don't know why it just makes me feel strong. Like the red is power. And that comes with me. I actually designed an entire line of necklaces that I launched a couple of weeks ago called the strike method necklace, which is a little gavel that you can layer under other necklaces, but you know, it's there. Cause I feel like, you know, we all just need something that makes us feel strong, but don't leave it just to that. Whenever you're going into a conversation, be prepared with what you're going to say after that strike method moment. You know, so if you're the person who says, here we go, don't just then be like, here we go. Silence. (laughs) You have to know what's coming next, right? So line up your first couple of sentences and practice them. Because if you've ever been in a meeting, and I'm sure Janice and Sarah and you both have, that you walk into a meeting and you watch somebody who gets completely flustered because they start into a sentence and then they get lost and then their face turns bright red from the bottom up and everybody starts feeling uncomfortable and everybody wants that person to be able to spit the words out. So what I would say to you is think about how you're going to start the point, how you're going to start that conversation. You know, that gavel goes down. And the first thing I say is good evening, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Lydia Finette. I am so delighted to be here. And then I usually throw in a joke. But if a bomb went off next to me, I would still say the exact same thing. And that for me is the moment to look around the room. Like, do I know anyone in here? What is the space looking like? Are people talking? Are they facing me? Like that gives me a moment to really give pause. And because it's so stuck in my brain that nothing will shake it out of it. I don't even think about it. It's like the first thing I say every time I get up and then I'm not tripping over my words. I'm not worried what I'm going to say. I feel strong and confident from that first moment and the adrenaline that you inevitably get before you speak or do something scary starts to ebb and then you find your voice again. Lydia, I'm starting to think right now, like, okay, what would be my strike method? And maybe if I don't know it already on top of my head, how do you recommend I discover it? Or how how should I experiment to know what works for me, assuming I don't have any on top of my mind? Think about a moment or something that makes you feel strong or powerful. Like, is there a mantra that you say to yourself, Sarah Ann, anytime that you feel like you're a little nervous, you're like, come on, let's do this. Or is there anything that you say to yourself that you could use as your strike method? If not, then I would say, try to find something physical in the meantime. Try to find something that you're literally holding onto and pushing into as if to launch you at that moment. And then think about your opening line for whatever you want to do. It can be as easy as that. So if you have a big presentation coming up or the next time you have a podcast coming up with a big guest who you might be a little nervous about, let's use that as an example. You could either come up with a mantra that you say right before you launch in, in your mind or to yourself, or you could have something under the table that you're pushing into and then you're lining up that first sentence, you know? Hi, I'm Sarah Ann. I'm so excited that you're here today. Something that easy because then you've started the ball rolling. And that for me is the strike method. It doesn't have to be like raw. I'm the power pose. I'm doing, you know, like the lion in front of the mirror. It's nothing like that. It's just something that allows you to feel like you can be authentic in who you are, but always come from a point of preparation because that'll make it easier. Great tips and can't wait for Janice and myself to try that out for our next podcast recording as well. (laughs) Let me know what they are because sometimes people can share them too. 
Well, you know, on the topic of ex- of furthering your career at Christie's, you spent a long time there. But there was this very specific time during your career when you realized that you were being underpaid below market rate. And when we first heard this story, it was such a fascinating story for Janice and myself because we're all about figuring out what our worth is. And so, you know, in that story, you came to then negotiate for a salary that commensurates your worth and your value to the company. So we would love for you to share this pivotal story with our listeners because we really think that that's something that they can take away. And um, especially what were the lessons that you learned from that incident? I had been working at Christie's for about 10 years when this story really transpired. I was at brunch with a bunch of friends, sort of one of those unlimited champagne brunches that we used to go to when I was in my early 20s without children, very carefree. And I remember at the end, she said to all of us, you guys, I'm so excited. I just bought my first one bedroom. And I remember being so floored. I mean, I was 30 years old at this point, which, you know, sounds old, but in New York City, that feels very young. And I was getting paid so little for my job. I was running events at that point for the entire of the US for Christie's and was also doing work down in South America as well. And I just remember thinking, wait, I thought we were all in the same boat. You know, we eat hors d'oeuvre because we don't have enough money to get groceries. You know, like this is just our life. Like this is, wait, what? And I pulled her aside afterwards. And I just remember being like, how are you affording this? And she's like, what are you talking about? And it was really the first moment in my life where I was like, hold on a second. I've just been coasting along, kind of thinking that this was fine. I really need to start doing some research and figuring this out. And so I did. I started asking around and it was wild how much I was getting underpaid. I mean, wild, not a half. Like I was getting paid a third of what I should have been paid. And interestingly, right around this time, we had a new head of HR. And after a meeting one day, he pulled me aside and said to me, we should actually talk about your salary. It's like kind of crazy how little you make. I had worked at this company for 10 years. I had started as an intern. I mean, this was my family. And you know, the auction world is so small and I loved everyone I worked with. I could not have loved my job more. I was working probably 11 and a half months out of the year. I was probably still working on the two weeks that I was supposed to be on vacation. I mean, we worked seven days a week, all hours. I was taking charity auctions every single night. I mean, firing on all cylinders. And I cannot even tell you how devastated I was. I felt like I'd been let down by my family. All these people who'd been like, you're so great at your job had just been lying to me. And this was the reason that I was not getting compensated. And so I basically went to meet another person at Moet and Hennessy. They had a job available. And I remember asking about the salary for the job. And the job was four times, four times what my salary was. Anyway, long and short, all this comes to a head when I go in to talk to my boss. And I was so fired up. I walked in and I said, so I'm leaving. I'm leaving to go to Sotheby's, our competitor. I was not leaving. I did not have another job offer on the table. But I think I just felt so strongly about the fact that at that point, I wasn't getting paid what my worth was, that I was willing to risk it. I also knew it was the time of the year that they didn't really have another backup. The other two people in my department were less than a year in, and I was 10 years in. And it was a really crucial time during the art season when our evening sales were taking place. And he was so flustered because that was really the first time I'd come in like that. And he was just like, uh what can we do to make you stay? And I can't even explain to you what it feels like. First of all, to realize that you were 100% right about the fact that you were getting underpaid so badly, but also have someone come back to you with that question. And so at that moment, I just had this sort of epiphany. I was like, I just need to go for broke. 
And I did. I had already come up with a business plan for a new department. I pitched it on the spot. He agreed it was a good idea. And so essentially over the course of that day, I tripled my salary and was able to get a global title in order to start this new department. And it's interesting because when I wrote that chapter, I remember crying as I was writing that chapter because it really, to me, was such a moment in my career where I realized two things. First and foremost, I will say this until the day I die. You work for a company. Your company is not your family. You need to negotiate every single year. Whether or not you get a raise is immaterial. You need to get used to asking. They need to get used to you asking because they know that you are in charge of your own future. You need to ask for what you want. Nobody gives you money unless you ask. And so I think as women, because that feels antithetical to what we're taught a lot of the time, or at least in my generation, it was very much like, oh, you work for such a great company. Like you're so lucky to work. There's so many other people who could do my job, but they're not the one doing my job that day. They're not the one showing up for work all those times. And if you don't appreciate what I do, then I should go elsewhere. Those are the words I should have had in my toolbox that I did not have at that time. And that's why I wrote that chapter, because I wanted people to understand that you have to take responsibility for asking for more. Whether or not you get it, it it's not part of it. The, the most important part is that you're asking that question. And also get used to hearing the word no. It's okay to hear the word no. You're not going to get a raise every time you ask, but at least ask the question. So I say all of that because I think that that chapter for me and in, in the most powerful woman in the room is you was one of the strongest chapters. And frankly, one of the chapters I got the most feedback about because there were so many women who were like, I can't tell you how many times people have said that to me. You're so lucky to be here. You're one woman in the room. Like, you know, you're lucky to be in the room. That's not it. The answer is I'm doing the work. I'm doing it well. I'm doing it above what I should be doing it. Is there more in the budget for me every single time? Wow, Lydia, I honestly had chills, I think, the whole time when you were sharing your story. You know, it's such a powerful reminder for us, um, especially as women, to get used to asking for what we want. Because sometimes being bold, and I, I will say so for myself, it does feel really uncomfortable sometimes. There's this concern, like, am I being too much? Am I coming off too strong? These are sometimes fears that I myself experience, but I thought that was such a good and powerful reminder that we need to start getting comfortable with this feeling of being uncomfortable, I will say. Absolutely. And I think that goes to everything in life. You know, my second book is called Claim Your Confidence. And people ask a lot about why I wrote a book on confidence and what the key to having confidence is. And I think you've just said it best. You get confident when you become comfortable getting uncomfortable. I often think now I do my best work in places where I feel a little uncomfortable. Like if I'm a little scared, if I feel like I'm taking a risk, it probably means that I'm doing the right thing. And I really do believe that because it's so easy to just coast along doing what we're good at, but that doesn't give you any confidence. It doesn't give you confidence to be good at something and then just keep doing it. It gives you confidence to try something new. Maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't, but you know that you're strong enough to try and you're okay with the answer either way. And that really, in my opinion, is the key to being more confident. I don't think that people think that that's the truth. They often think that people are confident because they're at the top of their game. And on that note, you want to dive into the second book that you published and it's titled Claim Your Confidence, Unlock Your Superpower and Create the Life You Want. Such an empowering title. And we just resonated so much with what was said in that book. We would love to hear you know, a personal story from you of a moment where you perhaps struggled to claim your confidence and how did you overcome it? 
I feel like anytime I'm feeling like I don't have confidence, I really try to think to myself at the core, what are you scared of now? And typically, if I'm honest, what I'm scared of is that other people are going to think something of me, right? I'm worried that people are going to think that I am too much or that I'm trying something that shouldn't be tried. But I've also realized that those feelings mean that I'm doing the right thing because it means that I'm trying something new and I'm trying something outside of my comfort zone. So to anyone who's listening right now, who's really struggling with confidence, I would say to you, first and foremost, you need to give yourself a gold star and stop looking around for other people to do that. So many times people think to themselves like, oh, am I good enough for that? Looking at other people as if other people have the answer. You don't need anybody to tell you if you're good at something. You know if you're good at something. And you likely know if you're not good at something. Either way, it's okay. But take that ownership back because once you are the person who's making those moments in your life happen because you truly believe in what you're doing, you are going to be much more confident in who you are. You know, I truly think that every single person that I know who's really living the life that they're supposed to be living has taken ownership of their gold stars. They're like, I I actually have that box now and I give myself those gold stars. I don't need anyone else to do it. And as a result of that, they aren't so concerned with what other people think when they put things out there. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. They keep moving. They keep pivoting. They just let those things fly by. And that's a huge part of claiming your confidence and truly living the life you want. I think that speaks very much into ownership and knowing your self-worth. I love how you say, you know, give yourself that gold star and don't wait for other people to give it to you. So I think Janice is a reminder for you and I also to, you know, give ourselves that pat on the back and not wait for other people to give it to us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And be unapologetic about that. You know, it's okay. You don't need to worry about what other people think. If they don't like it, that's okay. That probably has nothing to do with you. It's an amazing thing in this world of social media to watch how envious people can be about other people's lives when, in fact, the person who's doing what they're doing is probably just living the path of their life, not looking from side to side. I think about that all the time when people ask me for going on podcasts or doing things. Like, I never ask who else has been on their podcast because ultimately I don't really care. If I want to do it, I'm going to do it. And if I don't, then I don't. And those are the two ways that I look at it. And also a reminder that you are not for everyone. So that's also okay. Yeah. I'm not for a lot of people. That's okay. Yeah, <laughs> You are not going to be what everybody wants in their life. And that's okay. That's why you're not friends with every single person who walks the world. doesn't mean you can't inspire them. It doesn't mean also that in some ways you inspire them by forcing them to take a better look at what they're doing to make sure that they're living the life they want. But there are a lot of people out there who live in the coulda, shoulda, woulda land. You know, I could have done that. I should have done that. I would have done that. And what I always say is you can, you know, people say that to me about writing a book. Like I've always wanted to write a book, write a book. I did it. I'm no different than you are. I just sat down and did it. I just told a story. You have a story to tell. Coulda, shoulda, woulda, right? How many people do that? Very, very few. Well, I certainly hope that when I get the chance to look back in my life, I don't think that I have, I was living in could have, would have, should have then. I know exactly. I mean, what a sad thing, you know, as you get into the end of your life and you look back and you're like, gosh, I really yeah. wish I had done that. You know, that's not where you want to be. So take ownership of that. Mm. Well, Lydia, two years ago as well, you and your family had unfortunately experienced a major car accident that you write about in the last chapter of your book. And that was an accident that had a profound impact on your life. Would you be okay to sharing that story with our audience as well? And more importantly, about how that has influenced your perspective on life? Yeah, absolutely. 
So my three children, my husband and I were coming back from a Halloween party um, two years ago and a car coming in the other direction, lost control of her car and flipped over the guardrail and basically hit us spinning through the air for lack of a better way to describe it. I came to, and my husband was still out in the driver's seat. He was knocked out. I hadn't seen the car, so I didn't know what was going on. I just knew that I couldn't feel anything in my body. And my children were just screaming my name over and over again. But because I'd been hit so hard, I didn't even have the ability to turn around. At the time, what I came to find out was that I had fractured my spine and almost completely broken it in half. And my husband had shattered his left wrist, had been knocked out from the airbag, as had I, and that our children all had broken bones. And I mean, it was it was pretty much as a parent, but also just as a human, one of those defining moments that there was before the accident and then there's after the accident. You know, we were rushed to the hospital. My children saw me go in the ambulance. I was never able to get out of the car because of the condition of my spine. And thankfully I didn't because I would have been paralyzed for the rest of my life. But they pulled me onto a stretcher and loaded me into an ambulance. My husband had taken the children out of the car. A good Samaritan had pulled up behind our car and put our children in her car. And they, as a result of that, thought that I had died for well over an hour until we were all in the hospital again together. I had a picture that I show on Instagram every year at that moment. I, I look at that picture over the course of the year of the five of us on gurneys and in many ways think like it was almost like we died and were reborn that day because we came so close to death. And even in that moment, they didn't know if I was going to live or die. They were taking me in for internal surgery because I was so distended from the impact of the seatbelt that they thought that all of my organs were bleeding out. So by the grace of God, truly, I, I can say this a million times over, we were so blessed that day because so many things had to go right for us all to live and to make it out, able to walk. You know, I had a spinal fusion. I have a rod in my spine. I broke seven ribs in my body. And yet two years later, I go running and I do with all the things that I did before. Some of them feel a little different, but ultimately not that different. My children are all fine. You know, obviously we did therapy with them to get them through it. They all had to heal from their injuries. My husband had to have a titanium wrist put in as well. So we really are a whole lot of hardware in our family, but all of those things for me really clarified what I was writing up until that chapter in the book. I'd written 11 chapters when the accident happened. And as a result, the 12th is about the accident. And what I say is that you know, we all live thinking that these things that are going to happen over the course of our life are going to happen in a certain order, or there's a way that life is going to unfold. We have no idea what's coming. It's up to us to really understand that we have to take ownership of our lives and we have to live the lives that we want because it doesn't last forever. And that for me was really what that accident showed in a way that I had never thought about it before. You know, this all ends at some point that had never occurred to me before that night. Like this all ends. So are you doing what you want to be doing with your life? If not, change it. You're the only person who can change it and make it known to yourself that you get to live the life you want and then take that with you into every day of your life and live with intention. I'm positive because I was positive before that. I was positive even in the moment when I sat in the car, I was like, if I live, even if I'm paralyzed, I'll be fine. I know it. I'll be able to live a good life. I will figure it out. I will be like an amazing person who will play on paraplegic basketball teams. Like I will be that person if this is where my life goes from here. And I knew that even at that moment, 
And that is truly because I am confident in who I am and confident in the fact that no matter what happens to me, I'm strong enough to handle it. And so that's what I wanted that last chapter of the book to be. I wanted it to be a wake-up call to people who were reading along thinking, oh, everything's been so easy for her over the course of her life. Of course, she can write this book about confidence. Like, you never know what's going to happen to any of us. So start today. Start after you finish this podcast. Like, turn this off and think about what you want to do with your life. And this is your call to action to do that. I was honestly so moved by the way you just processed everything you had absolutely you know even though something so drastic and tragic had happened to you and your family you didn't have a victim mentality instead of thinking why me you were thinking why not me you know and decided that you weren't going to sit around and take life lying down and you know that was what eventually led you to the path of recovery and now we see you running gallivanting <laughs> across New York six events in a day like it it's just really, really incredibly inspiring to see how your life trajectory have become, you know, post the accident. Yes, absolutely. And I do think on so many levels, I know I talk about this in the book, the power of positivity. And I know that there's a whole era of people who talk about toxic positivity. I can also tell you firsthand what carried me through that accident was my positive attitude. I didn't mean that I didn't cry. It didn't mean that there weren't days that were so tough. I mean, the recovery from a spinal fusion, as you can imagine, I could not even lunge once without almost blacking out from the pain. I mean, it was day by day, at times minute by minute, in order to get through those times. But I never sat down and cried and thought, like, why did this happen to me? Instead, I thought to myself, like, God, how lucky we are to be alive. And I truly believe that we all have the ability to take that. Is the way that we live. Like how lucky and blessed are we to be alive? So to anyone who's listening right now, if you're having a hard time, if you're having a hard day, if you're having a hard year, it's okay. We've all been there. Just keep moving forward and know that ultimately you will be fine because you are strong and you are strong enough to be fine. The story that you have shared will definitely inspire and empower our listeners out there to take action and to be fully alive and to live their life to the very, very fullest um, while they can. We will be heading towards a rapid fire round for you, Lydia. And you okay. haven't seen any of these questions. Well, of course, you're a seasoned auctioneer. I don't think anything can throw you off. So we're going <laughs> to give you a little surprise at the very end. So the first question we have for you, Lydia, what is the most exciting auction that you've ever done? Ooh, I take an auction with Bruce Springsteen at Madison Square Garden in front of 7,000 people. And the first time I walked on that stage with him was definitely a crowning moment in the terms of my charity auctioneering career. Well, that's super exciting. What is the most unique item you've ever auctioned off? Oh my gosh. As a charity auctioneer, I mean, it's whatever you can imagine. I've auctioned off a horse. I've auctioned off a plot of land in Argentina. I've auctioned off Bruce Springsteen's mom's lasagna. I mean, you name it, I probably auctioned it off, which is why I say I can sell anything to anyone. What is your pre-auction ritual before getting on stage? I drink a Diet Coke <laughs> and then I grab my gavel and just head up there. You know, I love being on stage. So I know a lot of people hate that moment, but I let that adrenaline sink in. And to me, it's just energy I'm about to get and bring it to the audience. Love that. What was an auction that was personally most meaningful to you? 
I took an auction a couple of weeks ago for an organization called Room to Grow that was one of the first auctions that I ever took at Christie's. And Uma Thurman was there. Quentin Tarantino was there. It was kind of in her big Kill Bill days. And there was another auctioneer who was supposed to take it and they weren't able to make it. And I was there. So they said, do you want to take it? And I just remember being like, this is the moment, you know, this is my life. I can't believe this is my life. And so I think I've been taking it for 15 years and I just took their 25th anniversary last week. And that to me, those moments of seeing what we've built together because of the charity auctions, because of the money raised during those moments is really special. So that felt like a real moment. That sounds really surreal. And, you know, Lydia, we know that you are a podcaster as well. So let's put this dream up to the universe. Who is your dream podcast guest? Oprah is an everyone's dream podcast guest, Oprah. <laughs> Absolutely. Oprah. <laughs> we will manifest together with you on, on that okay, one. For, for both of us, <laughs> we, we could do a double podcast back to back. Oh my God, love that. When was the last time you got out of your comfort zone? I mean, every single day of my life, I think I do something, but I... I truly think athletically, that for me has been a big part of recovery. I made my husband who has, as I said, a titanium wrist and I have a titanium spine go surfing. I think it was about a, a year after the accident and I've done it since, but I remember thinking like, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. I can't really bend, you know, I can't do yoga because I can't really bend up anymore. The lower part of my spine is a rod and my husband has a titanium wrist, so he can't really put his arm down and we did it. We went to LA, it was freezing. We got our kids in the water and we all went surfing. And I remember my husband saying to me as we got out, he's like, you know, I have to be honest. I didn't think I was going to be able to do that. And I was like, but that's why we do this because we did and we were fine. And now we know we can surf and that's so exciting. So those physical moments where I'll be like, oh, you know, after the accident, can I run? Running has been a part of my life, my whole life. Can I run five miles? 10 miles on a Saturday used to be every Saturday of my life for over 25 years. And all of a sudden it was like, I could barely walk a quarter of a block. And so, you know, running five miles now feels like a great thing and a huge win. And so celebrating that. Well, Lydia, we'd love to wrap up our episode with all our guests with this one final question, which is what is one thing that you would like to explore more of? I think I have room to grow probably like most things. So just like with the auctioneering, with the podcasting, it's just a constant evolution of practice. So I'd like to explore more podcasting and continue on. And then one day I will be as good as Janice and Sarah Ann. <laughs> you are That's being like extremely generous with that, Lydia. We one day aspire to have someone sponsor us and do all the hard work for us. But in the meantime, we got to hustle real hard. <laughs> Hustling. It's part of the journey. Yeah, we're well, we love it because it connects us to incredible people like you. And well, Lydia, on that note, you know, Janice and myself had such an incredible and fun time recording this interview with you. You can see that I was laughing a lot of the times. I even shed a tear when you were sharing your accident story because it really moved me about how your family just stuck on together. Titanium um, wrist in one hand and like titanium back. But yeah. you know, it all just spoke of the resilience that your entire family had and you know it was just very very inspiring and we cannot wait to put this episode out there into the world and you know I'm personally reminded about how we have to get used to ask for what we want and to yes. remember our worth and also get used to hearing other people say no so those are the few key takeaways among many others that I've taken away from this exciting conversation with you Lydia. Oh good well I'm glad that there's some actionable takeaways and thank you again for having me. It's been a wonderful time and pleasure. See you soon. Thank you, guys. If you stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say 
Thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We would love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every alternate Mondays at 8pm. See you then!